Welcome to Under the Dome. I'm joined this week by Western Carolina University politics professor, political science professor, all-around expert on all things uh, Western North Carolina, uh, Chris Cooper. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, I, I wanted to have you on because uh, I think that that North Carolina 11, um, currently Madison Cawthorn's district, is is the most interesting uh, primary maybe in the country. Mm-hmm. Um and I also think this is a timely thing uh, to have you on because Madison Cawthorn cannot stop making headlines. Um, for those of you who might have missed, uh, last week Madison Cawthorn uh, came out, reports came out that he he's, has speeding tickets in, in three, three counties in Western North Carolina, um, is including driving with a revoked license. And you would think that would be bad enough news for a congressman for one week. But the very next day, video surfaced of uh, Cawthorn calling um, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, sort of a, a worldwide hero at the moment, uh, calling him a thug and um, accusing him of spreading misinformation and uh, pushing woke uh, policies out of Ukraine. Um, Chris, uh, you've seen Madison Cawthorn have a lot of controversies. Where does this one, in particular, the, the Ukraine comments sort of rank? It ranks high, and I think partially because the consequences are higher right now. If this was an isolated incident, it would just be another drop in the uh, bucket of Madison Cawthorn mistakes, which is which is a pretty big bucket, to be fair. But when this is on top of the driver's license stuff, after he flirted with a district to our east and then came back home, is facing a crowded field, I mean, there's a lot of things that are kind of piling up on Madison Cawthorn at once. So I think this one's big partly because he's running so counter to public opinion and partly because the timing just couldn't be worse for him. Let let me make sure I get the quote right. He said, remember that Zelensky is a thug. Remember the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and it is incredibly evil and it has been pushing woke ideologies. Now he said this um, at a town hall in Asheville, Um, but it just got, it just got out late last week. Was there a sense that something like this was out there or lurking or? Not at all. I mean, there's always, I guess, sort of a sense that Madison Cawthorn has probably said something controversial that might get him in trouble. But as far as the specifics of this one, no, this one hit me with as much of a surprise as everybody else. And just to make things even more confusing for those of us out West, our last member of Congress, Mark Meadows, of course, got embroiled in potential voter fraud this last week too. So it's Madison Cawthorn, it's Mark Meadows, just in case you thought those are the only two examples, Sidney Powell lives in our district as well. So we've got we've got it all. <laughs> you know, Cawthorn has been pretty outspoken about not I, I'm going to be generous in my interpretation. here. He's been very outspoken about not wanting to shed U.S. blood or send U.S. treasure to fight a war in Ukraine. He, mm-hmm. You know, he thinks it's more important that that we defend our own borders and that this is a faraway country. We don't need to be the world's policemen. Um, that is not, while not an isolated uh, point of view in the Republican Party, not the dominant point of view, but certainly not, not he's not the only one that feels that way. Right. These comments sort of echo a little bit of what Donald Trump has said in the past, but even Trump has kind of moved away from from talking about Ukraine and Zelensky as these as this corrupt country and this corrupt leader. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is look having an isolationist foreign policy is not. Uh, a radical position. Folks might 
disagree with it. They might not like it. But certainly we see examples uh, from the Republican Party and even from the Democratic Party where you've got kind of more isolationist figures tying it specifically to Zelensky. I mean, this is, you know, it'd be like right after the Super Bowl, you know, the the MVP is the person you decide to attack, right? I mean, this is the person the whole country is kind of behind. I, I went to drop off my kids at school the other day and the, uh, you know, one of the aides at school made a comment to me about Zelensky. And she hopes Zelensky's okay. This is penetrating to, you know, average people who don't frankly listen to the Under the Dome podcast and don't <laughs> geek out on Twitter. I mean, this this is a real issue. He's somebody that real people know about. And for Cawthorn to decide to take that kind of attack is just politically naive is the kindest way I can put it. And this reaction has been far different. I, I, this is why I think this may have much more staying power and may impact his chances um, much more than, you know, the, the list is lengthy, but to hit some of the highlights, you know, Carrying a gun through the airport, carrying a knife at a school board meeting, um, the the part the the speeding issues that we talked about, driving with a revoked license, even the issues at Patrick Henry College, which have sort of been litigated, um, where he may have been may have harassed women, may have, uh, you know, uh, that's probably the most the, the most generous reading, uh, may have sexually assaulted women is probably the most strongest reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one seems to be different in that you can't blame this on the liberal media. And secondly, Republicans, Tom Tillis, uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, the, those Republicans that are running against him in NC7, NC11 have, have already jumped on these comments, and I cannot imagine they're going to go away. This seems to have put him at odds with the Republicans in a way that all of those other things did not. This puts him at odds with everybody. I mean, this, this would be like if somebody came out and said, you know, Santa Claus has really been driving me nuts lately. I mean, he's... <laughs> He's attacking somebody who at the moment is is a bit beyond reproach. And, and as you pointed out, at least two of his um, opponents, and actually I think it's more than that, even if you look at their kind of Twitter accounts, have taken issue with this comment, including Michelle Woodhouse, who is as pro-Trump America first as you can possibly get. Even she's saying, whoa, 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 this is way too far. I'm with Trump, not Cawthorn. And I think trying to draw that line and say, hey, you can be pro-Trump and not vote for Madison Cawthorn, clearly, strategically, that's a smart move by Michelle Woodhouse. Chuck Edwards has done some of the same thing, as well as some of the other half dozen candidates that are running in this field. And, and that's what I really wanted to talk to you about. So, um, you know, the, the comments will be dissected over and over again. Sure. What is the practical implications on the ground? And if, if you're uh, listening to this in Raleigh, uh, you know, certainly we, we have an open seat in NC 13 that includes Wake County, has attracted a lot of candidates. Um, there, there's a, a Democratic primary in the Chapel Hill, Durham area that's attracted a lot of Democrats. What, what makes NC 11 stand out to me is it's a sitting member of Congress, has attracted, by my count, eight Republican challengers, um, not to mention six Democratic challengers um, in, a, in a relatively safe Republican seat. Um, that doesn't happen. I, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say, you know, you might draw a token challenger who doesn't really have a chance, or you may draw a good challenger who beats you. You don't usually draw eight challengers if you're a sitting congressperson. No, you don't. And <laughs> and you look, this is a self-inflicted wound, and I'm not just talking about the comments that just came to light or the 
you know, the driver's license or saying that Madison, that James Madison was in a different place than he was or sexual assault charges or anything else. I mean, when he decided to run in what was then called briefly, if you remember, NC-13, which is the district to our east or was the district to our east, the field opened up. Essentially, he lost his incumbency advantage the moment he did that. I mean, there have been rumors around the district that Edwards would like to challenge Cawthorn, but probably wouldn't. Well, once uh, Cawthorn headed out, headed away from the hills in this case, that's when Edwards got in. That's when Michelle Woodhouse got in. When Cawthorn came back, it's like you take this incumbency advantage and it just kind of goes poof. I mean, even in the while he was gone, Edwards racked up some pretty impressive endorsements. So Jim Davis, um, former NC50 Republican state senator, um, really well-respected in Republican circles in Western North Carolina. He came out for Chuck Edwards. A number of other sitting members did. So what, whatever is good about incumbency, Madison Cawthorn managed to blow in his very first attempt for re-election. The, the two names we've mentioned on this podcast, uh, Senator Chuck Edwards, uh, representative, uh, a senator in the North Carolina um, General Assembly, and Michelle Woodhouse, who was the, the NC-11 GOP chair. So, you know, I, I don't and you can fill me in on some of the other candidates, how, how well funded they are or how much of a chance they have. But those two names really stand out as people who have ties to the district, have, have certainly um, built up some goodwill, at least among some factions of the Republican Party there. And based on their initial reaction to, to everything that's happened since the districts were finalized, don't seem to be backing down to Madison Cawthorn at all. And, and Michelle Woodhouse is someone who Cawthorn gave money to and appeared to be endorsing for the seat before jumping back into it. So she really has no reason to back down. And, and from what I know in the legislature about Chuck Edwards, he has no reason to back down. That's exactly right. They're not backing down. They're, they're doubling down, frankly. Um, and so Michelle Woodhouse, I mean, this is it's a fascinating story, right? So Michelle Woodhouse is, as you said, head of the 11th uh, uh, District Republican Party. Madison Cawthorn, at this point, we don't even know that he's going to leave. He gives some money to the Michelle V. Woodhouse Committee. A bunch of us, including myself, were a little puzzled. What the heck's going on? Whoa, she's not running for anything. Then he leaves the district. Then he gives a little bit more money to her. Clearly, the two are lined up. There was all sorts of irony there because, to make a very long story relatively short, the last round, Madison Cawthorn essentially got this seat because there was a perception that Mark Meadows was setting somebody up. So we all kind of thought, man, maybe the same thing will happen. Well, Cawthorn comes running back. Woodhouse says, essentially gives him the Heisman and says, this is my district now calls him, I believe the, uh, you can correct me on this, Brian, but I believe it's the failed promises Instagram candidate, not exactly mincing words. Right. Chuck Edwards, who had had some light criticism of Cawthorn even before, actually, uh, is definitely in it uh, to win it, I guess, as the kids say. And then we've got a host of other candidates who are pretty interesting and occupying kind of different lanes. So Bruce O'Connell is this guy. If you've ever been up in the mountains, he owns the Pisgah Inn, nice place. He loaned his campaign a million bucks. Going to make yourself a competitor overnight? Give yourself a million bucks, right? Um, Wendy Navarez has been in from the beginning. Not a fundraising dynamo, but occupying this kind of centrist lane very well. Um, this guy named Rod Honeycutt is running what he calls the boots on the ground campaign. He's got a ton of foreign policy experience, clearly with what's going on in Ukraine, not a bad thing to have in, under your belt. Um, 
a guy named Matthew Burrell, who is a, a sort of a kind of leading as the business economy sort of candidate. Um, Christy Sluter, who got in very late, I think folks know less about, myself included, um, other than she used to be a Democrat until fairly recently. But still, that's a big crowded field. And if you subscribe to the idea of it, you kind of need to have a lane or something that voters know about you. It's hard to figure out what lane is left for Cawthorn other than media bling, for lack of a better description. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, with Woodhouse kind of trying to occupy that America first lane, I would think would, you know, Cawthorn will fight her for, for that America first Trump uh, wing of the party. You look at that, there are candidates with impressive credentials or at least lanes to run in. I guess you could make the argument that that might be the best thing that Madison Cawthorn has going for, that there are so many candidates and they're all in different lanes and he has name ID and certainly just needs to get the 30% of the vote, uh, you know, to get through this primary. Is there there some concern up there among Republicans that, you know, anti-Cawthorn Republicans, that there's just too many of us and, and, you know, Cawthorn's going to win because of that? I think to some degree um, there is that concern, but I think there's a kind of accompanying positive uh, for them from their perspective that maybe there's just so many candidates that nobody gets 30% plus one. So really I'm sure on the record, they would all say that they plan to win in the first primary, but I've got to think realistically, strategically, the best hope they've got is to force a second primary and to shine a big spotlight on Madison Cawthorn's behavior and hope that they have more weeks like the one we just had. So that 30% plus one mark is kind of the key thing to watch. And the the dorky political scientist in me has to point out that just a few years ago, that number was 40% plus one. And so I believe that change in 2017, Mark Meadows, the first time he ran, didn't get 40% plus one forced to run off if we're at 40%, I, I can't imagine any candidate would get that number. Can they get 30% plus one? We'll see. Which is pretty amazing. The sitting congressperson, we do not believe could get thir- could get 40% of the vote in a in a district that the Republican is going to be favored in. That's that's right. that's that's pretty amazing and, and a pretty big fall from where, you know, if Cawthorn was spoke at the Republican National Convention in prime time before he'd even been elected to Congress. Um, was a bright shining star in the Republican Party, and his two years as as a member have really dimmed that star, at least from where I sit. And I covered, you know, Washington D.C. I was up there for a long time um, to see other Republicans come out and take shots at him. Um, it, it's pretty amazing. It's a it's a pretty amazing fall from those enormous heights that he reached. You know, maybe too quickly. Exactly, and I'll, I'll put an even finer point on it. We're not even at two years yet, right? We're at one year and about three months, I think. So it is extraordinary how quickly he's fallen. And I think part of it is, you know, kind of a lesson for politics. Like if you shoot at your own team, they're not going to be there to protect you. I mean, this is a guy who called Tom Tillis a, quote, rhino and a terrible campaigner. I mean, Tom Tillis, you may like Tom Tillis, you may not like Tom Tillis. He's a powerful figure in the Republican Party. To take a shot at him just doesn't make any sense. Like, take a shot at Mitt Romney. Yeah, you can probably get away with that, right? He's all the way in Utah. What does it really matter for a North Carolina Republican? To take a shot at Tom Tillis with statewide, who had support as a, of course, in the General Assembly and then in the United States Senate, it just doesn't make any sense. And I think we're seeing the consequences. 
also took a shot at Tim Moore, the Speaker of the House, may, may soon be the longest serving Speaker of the House in North Carolina history, um, took a shot at him for a really no need, a, an unnecessary shot at him. And what's amazing is we've made it this far into the conversation. We've talked about all the things that Cawthorn has done um, and made headlines for, and we haven't even mentioned January 6th. I mean, right. we, we haven't even gotten there, which, it, you know, I, I was talking to some other people this week and said, you know, the television advertisement just writes itself, right? I want to go to Washington and, and any Republican or Democrat in that district could run this ad. I want to go to Washington to be your representative, not to make headlines. Boom. And you just play the clips of the television station saying Madison Cawthorn was charged today or the, the headlines from, from the paper, you know, Matt Cawthorn arrested or, you know, cited Cawthorn, uh, you know, uh, calls Zelensky a thug. I mean, the headlines just sort of write themselves. And then you come back on and say, I'm whoever. And I want to represent the people of the 11th district. You know, it, it seems like, a, a you know, I don't know if it'll be enough. And, um, you know, Cawthorn does have a lot of star power. Um, and so and may be able to weather this storm. But it, unlike anything I can I can say I've ever really seen from a freshman representative. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and the consequences that he's that may be facing are, you know, pretty extraordinary here. And and I think what we're seeing now is sort of light pushback. So Chuck Edwards put an ad out called Mountain Values, right? And very clearly his take was, I'm of the mountains. Mountain values are about working hard. Mountain values are about sticking with where you're from. And look, that's not so subtle of a dig at, at Madison Cawthorn. We haven't even talked about the Democratic field yet, which, as you pointed out, this is a Republican district. There's, there's no doubt about it. But the front runner, Jasmine Beach Ferrara, is not as prodigious a fundraiser as Madison Cawthorn, but she's also not as prodigious a fund spender as Madison <laughs> Cawthorn, right? She's got a pretty big bankroll at this point, and she's a, a Buncombe County sitting uh, commissioner right now. And every one of these Madison Cawthorn screw-ups, she's raising more and more money. So I'm not saying that a Democrat's going to be favored in this district by any stretch. But I am saying if you were to draw up how could a Democrat possibly win in the 11th, you get a libertarian candidate, which we have in this field, siphoning away some of the Republican vote. You get a controversial figure like Madison Cawthorn who squeaks through after taking a lot of shots in the primary. And then you've got a well-funded Democratic candidate. Odds aren't with her, but there's a non-zero chance she's able to pull this out. Yeah, no, that's fa that's fascinating perspective. On the Republican side, it, it's only 10 weeks until the primary. So you would think if there were, this were longer and it was playing out longer, maybe there would be some consolidation and, and people would say, Edwards is our guy or Woodhouse is our is our woman. Um, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen with only you know 10 weeks to go. And so um, is there can someone sort of consolidate that on their own, consolidate enough of the anti Cawthorn vote on their own um, to, to either get into that runoff or, or to win it outright in May? Yeah, I think they can. You know, we'll see. This is, you know, I hate to keep using the word unprecedented. It gets overused in American politics. Most things are, in fact, precedented. This one doesn't really have precedence, though, right? It really is truly unprecedented. So could that happen? You know, absolutely. I, I think each candidate, other than Cawthorn, is actually playing their cards pretty well. They have a different set of cards. Um, some are better, some are worse. 
but they're all playing them well. So Michelle Woodhouse, I mean, clearly her message is you can still be America first and not vote for this guy. Chuck Edwards is clearly, I'm the grown up in the room. I'm the establishment politician. I've done it in, uh, in Raleigh. You know, Winnie Navarez is saying, hey, look, do you want somebody who can actually get something done? He's a centrist. Rod Honeycutt playing again to this boots on the ground. I'm from the region, but I also have foreign policy experience. They're all running pretty smart campaigns, and um, we'll see if it's enough. Uh, a couple quick ones to end. We talk about this, and obviously the Zelensky comments get a ton of attention. There seems to be a rolling controversy almost every week. I mean, I, I reported, and, and I wasn't the only one. I'm not, I'm not taking credit for it, but I reported – you know, right after January 6th about Cawthorn leaking support from key constituents, from from sheriffs, from people that have influence in the district. It, it is not that uh, Cawthorn has necessarily fallen off a cliff. It's that it's been a slow and steady erosion of support in the district. Is, is that a proper read? Obviously, you're there. We're pretty far away. It, that is a proper read, I think. And, and I'll say on the outset, you know, we don't have any reliable polling to go off of. So a lot of this is you know, kind of feeling talking to people. Um, and that is, you know, good and bad. Um, but yes, I think it has been a steady erosion. And and the sheriff, I think you're probably talking about is a guy named George Irwin, who's right. a, a powerful figure, right? Sheriffs matter in, well, they matter in all of North Carolina. That's why you got 10 folks running for sheriff for Wake County right now. But in the West, they matter perhaps even more. I mean, these are not big counties, even with the, with the exception of Buncombe and to some degree, Henderson. But George Irwin was the Henderson County Sheriff and respected amongst sheriffs. And he put his support behind Cawthorn, and it made a difference, I think, really in a tight primary. He pulled it soon after January 6th, and I think that was a, a key moment in the sort of shifting gears in how the Republicans perceived Madison Cawthorn, which is why him leaving temporarily for the 13th is even more head scratching at a time where he should have been shoring up his support at home. He left home and went on a little walkabout and then came back home. And, and that, you know, that's the problem. And it's certainly these were court enacted uh, maps, mm -hmm. but that's the problem with um, taking direct aim at the speaker of the house when he gets another chance to draw maps um, and you've announced your intentions to run against them or to try to take the seat that was made for him. And, Guess what? He gets to redraw another map. Um, and so it, it's just, he's picked almost all the wrong enemies in some ways. It's, it's bizarre. It, it's the, the primary is on May 17th. What are the chances on May 18th? We're talking Cawthorn easily wins the primary and, you know, is certainly favored in, in the general. You know, the, the latter part, I think, is is very possible. The favorite of the general part. Sure. Easily wins. You know, I'd be surprised, but it's not impossible. Look, if you get, you know, five or six percent spread across multiple candidates um, with maybe a 18 or so for uh, for Edwards, maybe a 15 or so for for Woodhouse. Yeah. Cawthorn pulls this out pretty well, but at least right now and with these latest news dumps and with him pulling out of town halls seemingly daily, he's going to need to stop the bleeding for that to happen. You know, I think right now, again, that 30% plus one is the big mark. Whether he gets the most votes or not, I don't know. But the 30% plus one at this point, it's possible, but I wouldn't lay money on it. Let me switch gears totally on you for one question, and then uh, I'll get your nominee for headliner of the week, which okay. is back on Under the Dome. Um, 
I, I, I've, I've been writing about it and I'm sure the topic's going to come up with the longest session and, yeah. uh, you know, North Carolina history. We've seen a rash of retirements and or people from the, the western part of the state just leave deciding not to run for reelection. Um, certainly they have the longest drive, the most arduous way to get to Raleigh. How, uh, Brian Turner has talked about this repeatedly, representative who's not running for reelection. How big of a factor is that in, in some of those races um, there? And when you talk to people who may be running or candidates who are in the, the schedule, the length, the intensity, the, the frequency, how much of that has become an issue for people who might want to represent the western part of the state? Yeah, I think it's unsustainable. I mean, the the com like the salary, and I've certainly uh, you've done a lot of you've done a lot of research on this area. So I, right. I you know, yeah, and and it's the salary is a problem, right? So thirteen thousand nine hundred fifty one dollars, and that's been a problem for a while. We've been talking about this since the nineteen forties, actually, in North Carolina. But you add the bad salary to a session length, which has been variable for a while, but is now record length. And you add that to distance. And yeah, you've got really an unsustainable model. And I think Brian Turner has, as you mentioned, done a really good job just kind of talking about that in real terms. I mean, here's a guy with a, a young-ish kid, you know, kid at home anyway. And so what that means on his family life um, I think it's really difficult, particularly for candidate recruitment, right? So maybe an incumbent stays with it for a while. Um, but, you know, I've never asked Jim Davis this question, but, you know, he was very powerful, very well-liked, very well-respected state senator from 50, which is the farthest West District you can get in the state. And, uh, you know, he retired. And when he retired or stepped down from the General Assembly, he had enough gas in the tank that he decided he wanted to run for Congress. So clearly, this is not somebody who was just done with politics, right? There was something else that pushed him out of the General Assembly. And so I think it matters. And just to give folks a sense of what it feels like out here, John Snow, who used to represent 50 years ago as a Democrat, used to joke, but it was one of these jokes that's, uh, like Homer Simpson said, funny because it's true. When he got to Asheville, he was halfway to Raleigh. And so think about that. He gets to Asheville, he's halfway to Raleigh. I mean, this really is, I think, a problem for the state. I'm glad to see other folks talking about it on, a, on another podcast. I heard John Hood making some of these very same points just the other week. So I'm hoping that as a state, we start to have a, a conversation about what kind of legislature we're creating. Yeah, I, I've talked to several lawmakers about it. And, and the thing that struck me that I hadn't you know, we, we all know about the length of the session. We all know about the, the low pay. We all know about the long drive. The, the one thing they've brought up to me, several have brought up to me that I did, didn't really hit me is the unpredictability. They, they wake up on Sundays and that's when they find out if they have to be in Raleigh that week. Like it makes planning impossible. Is there a way, even if you don't go to a, a, a you know, a, a defined session that's really short, or if you don't go to a full-time session that's, you know, commensurate pay and, and staffs, is there a way to get the schedule structured in a way that, hey, we're going to be in Raleigh these eight weeks and then you're off for this month and then we're going to be here for nine weeks and then you're off for this month and that it's not a week by week every Sunday. I've got to check and see what my schedule is going to be. That would that would certainly help. Um, Natalie Murdoch was talking to me about this, Senator Natalie Murdoch, about, you know, if you have another job they're willing to be flexible with you. But if you can tell them, hey, the month of January, I'm gone, but the month of February, I'm here. Well, that's a lot better than calling them on Monday morning and saying, oh, actually, there's a session on Tuesday I got to be at. 
Um, and so I just wonder that, that that wouldn't be a fundamental change. You wouldn't need a constitutional right. change for that. But it could be a way for the leaders of the Senate or the House to structure things in a way that helps their 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 members, their members. That's right. It would help their members and it would expand the pool of people who's willing to run for office. I mean, just to return ever so briefly to the 11th, you know, we ran through briefly the, you know, Baker's dozen candidates that are running for this seat. And yet you look at these General Assembly seats in the West and there's, you know, if we're lucky, there's one people running from one person from each party. And you got to figure the people at the bottom of this, the people who are unlikely to win the 11th congressional district seat might have a better chance if they were to run for the general assembly and they're not doing it. And I think we as a state need to think through why that is and how we can encourage a better pipeline of folks, not just trying to attack Madison Cawthorn, but trying to run to, to govern our state better. Yeah, no, that's a great point. A great point. Well, I, I appreciate the time and, and the, the expertise on what's happening in the mountains of North Carolina and, and that 11th district that you have become, and, and maybe you were previously, but uh, since I started covering the 11th and Madison Cawthorn in particular, you've, you've been, uh, you know, a, the expert, the go-to person. And I know you, you do a lot of media across the state, which we really appreciate. Um, we reintroduced Headliner of the Week to, to the Under the Dome podcast, backed by popular demand. I think you even voted to return it. So I'm going to yes. put you on the spot and uh, give me your Headliner of the Week. Oh, man. Uh, first of all, I'm glad to know it's back. I'm glad to know that, that my vote counts and that uh, I was considered a resident of the state uh, to be able to cast that vote. So that's much appreciated. I promise it's the only state that I'm actually voting. Right, right. Um, I mean, the fact that we did not even get to the Mark Meadows situation just tells you what, what a busy, busy <laughs> week it's been. Um, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, look, it, much like the, the Time Magazine thing, right? So the headliner of the week, as I understand it, isn't necessarily the person doing the best work, but the person who's drawing the headlines. And how on earth can the headliner of the week not be Madison Cawthorn once again? And I, 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 I sort of hate to give more attention there, but look, there's no question. That guy drew more headlines this week than anybody else across the state. Yeah, no doubt. I, I think it's a, it's an easy choice that Madison Cawthorn is the headliner of the week. And his strategy has been to draw those headlines. I'm not sure he wants the headlines he's been getting. That's right. I agree completely. Yeah. <laughs> well, Chris, I, I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us on, on this week's episode of Under the Dome. For the News and Observer and NC Insider, I'm Brian Murphy. See you next week. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for her weekly political newsletter at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.